We live in a culture of extreme narcissism. Our contemporary culture is all about self, self-love, self-promotion, and self-centeredness. Psychologists bafflingly encourage us to focus more on self-care and better self-esteem. Many of us have social media accounts devoted to promoting yourself, promoting your personal brand or showcasing your achievements or your amazing life experiences that everyone needs to see. I mean, if it didn't happen on Facebook or Instagram or whatever the current social media app is, did it really happen? Just think about the number of photographs that we take every day now that we have smartphones. Every single day we're taking photographs all throughout the day. Is it really that important to photographically document every aspect of your life? And related to this, we even have the photographic phenomenon known as the selfie, okay? Doesn't get any more narcissistic than that. The selfie, a photograph of yourself taken by yourself, okay? Which of course, we all know, prompted the invention of the selfie stick. You gotta have that. Uh, this device that's used for taking better pictures of yourself all by yourself without the help of anyone else. I saw a headline recently uh, in a major news outlet that said, taking selfies now poses a public health problem. And you are probably curious as I was, I clicked into it to see what this was all about. And apparently a university did a peer reviewed study of data on accidental deaths related to taking selfies, okay? And they concluded that taking selfies are beginning to, po to actually pose a public health problem. Okay, people in significant numbers, according to the study, are dying as a result of attempting to take selfies and fatally injuring themselves in the process. The study said it identified falls from heights due to selfie taking as the most common cause of injury and death. And drowning was identified as the second most common. Getting that perfect selfie has been taken to the extreme. Now, obviously, this is an absurd example of our culture's narcissism and pride. Uh, it's easy for us to sit in here and poke fun at a story like that. Aren't those people so ridiculous? I would never do something like that. We can all sit in here and say, yes, I'm a little bit self-centered, I, I must admit, uh, but I'm definitely not as bad off as those people. Come to think of it, I'm a pretty humble person, I think. And then we start to see uh, that pride subtly creeps in. I thank you, God, that I'm not like that tax collector over there. Pride subtly creeps in in many different forms. In the words of Paul, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Pride is the beginning of all sin. In the garden, literally the beginning, the serpent offered the false promise of becoming like God. He told Eve, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Behind all sins we commit lies the sin of pride. This is why many theologians throughout the history of the church have considered pride as the root 
of all sin. Okay, it's the sin lurking behind all other sins. And if you think about it for a moment, this makes a lot of sense. In order to set aside the commands of God to reject his ways, you have to believe that you know better than God. When we sin, we're saying, I'm going to do things my way. Yes, Lord, I know what you've said. I know what you've revealed. But I am my own God. I know what's best for me. I've determined in this moment what is good and right for me. I know the true path to happiness and fulfillment. Sin is ultimately narcissistic. Sin begins with pride, a lifting up of oneself in the place of God. But Peter says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He warns us not to set ourselves up in opposition to Almighty God. Rather, we're called to humble ourselves before Him and humble ourselves toward one another in service. Humility is the inverse of pride, lowering ourselves before Almighty God. Peter, in this letter to Christians living in Asia Minor, is writing, of course, to instruct the people of God, uh, who we've looked at over the past uh, year. Uh, they've been undergoing fiery trials of suffering. They're experiencing persecution and ridicule from their pagan neighbors. And Peter's writing to encourage them and to teach them how they ought to live, how they ought to be the church. And he's teaching them in the midst of these various trials, uh, how they ought to operate amongst one another, how they ought to live in relation to their neighbors. And in this section of the letter, he's giving them an exhortation on how to treat one another within the body of Christ. And Peter here specifically highlights the importance of humility as a defining characteristic among the people of God. If pride is the root of sin, then humility is the root of repentance. If all sin begins with pride, then all virtue should start from a place of humility. This morning, as we consider God's word to us in Peter's words, I want us to consider three things concerning humility. Peter gives us the call to humility, the motivation for humility, and the promise for the humble. First, the call to humility. Peter says in verse 5, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Peter calls the whole church to humility. Notice he says, all of you. Okay, in the preceding verses, he was instructing the elders of the church regarding their role and their responsibilities to the flock. And then he spoke to the younger regarding their responsibilities to submit to the elders of the church. And now he says, all of you. He speaks to the whole church, whether you're in leadership or whether you are following leaders, all of you clothe yourselves in humility toward one another. This is a calling for the whole church. And Peter says that Christians are to clothe themselves with humility. Humility is like a garment, like an article of clothing that Christians need to wear in our relationships with one another. This word here that Peter uses for clothe is a unique word in the New Testament. At the root of this specific word is the idea of the apron that a slave or a servant would wear. It's the idea of tying the servant's apron. 
Peter says, all of you tie on the apron, the servant's apron of humility in your dealings with one another. That's the command. That's the calling. And Peter, no doubt, has in mind, as maybe you have in your mind right now, the picture of our Lord doing just that. John 13 records the episode when Jesus ties the towel around his waist and stoops down to wash the disciples' feet, wiping their feet with the towel that's wrapped around him. And you'll remember Peter. Peter was the one who first objected to this. You shall never wash my feet, Lord. It reminds us of how radical uh, this idea was in the first century, how radical humility was, even for a Jew like Peter in the first century. He couldn't imagine his king stooping down and behaving in this way. In the ancient world, humility was not considered a virtue. There are many moral qualities that were shared in some ways by Christians and pagans, uh, but being humble was not one of those virtues. Being a servant was not considered a noble thing. Servants were considered to many to be subhuman. Humility was a sign of weakness and shame. Lowering oneself in service to others was not an admirable thing to do. This is why Peter initially refuses Jesus. He doesn't want to see his king, his Messiah, acting in this way. We forget how much our contemporary moral imagination has been influenced by Christianity in a good way. Our modern sensibilities, even among unbelievers, have been affected by the teaching of Christ and the apostles. So most people know today that it's not polite to brag about yourself or to boast about yourself. But again, pride still has a way of creeping in, doesn't it? Even in our attempts to hide our pride, we find uh, pride finds a way to creep in. We come up with various forms of false humility to cover up our pride. We might downplay our work in order to fish for a compliment. This meal's terrible. I'm such a horrible cook. No, no, honey, it's delicious. You're such an amazing cook. Okay, you see how that works? Or we might uh, engage in the notorious humble brag. My biggest weakness is that I care too much. I'm too detail-oriented. True humility is not about self-denigration or despising yourself. It's not about minimizing your gifts or trying to hide them. In fact, true humility is more about taking the focus off yourself entirely. To summarize C.S. Lewis, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Okay? It's not thinking lower thoughts about yourself, but it's thinking about yourself less. It's forgetting about ourselves and turning our attention to the Lord and serving others. It's a certain attitude of mind that results in action toward our brothers and sisters. Peter says we need to put on or tie on this attitude of mind toward one another. This means that humility is not primarily something that we exercise all alone. Okay? We're not sitting around by ourselves just trying to feel very humble. You know, sitting in the car by yourself, I just feel so humble right now. No, that's not the idea, just trying to get yourself to feel humble by yourself. Peter says, clothe yourselves in humility toward one another. 
toward one another. We're called to serve and lay down our lives for each other. Listen to how Paul puts it in Philippians 2. We just read this. Do, not, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. We're not to be so tied up in ourselves or focused on our own personal success that we forget about each other. We should be thinking less about ourselves and thinking more about others' interests. Here's a good test case. When you're having a conversation with someone, are you genuinely interested in that person and what they have to say? Or are you more interested in what you are about to say next? Or how you can tie this conversation back to yourself? Is your goal to genuinely promote the well-being, the interests of others, or to keep up appearances? Am I going to look good if I'm talking to these people? Or to get people to like you? I really want this person to like me. I'm going to go out of my way to say hey to them. In other words, is your life fundamentally about you? Is it all about you? Here's another Lewis quote to illustrate. He says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. A true humility is about taking our eyes off of ourselves, turning them toward the Lord and toward our neighbor. When we have the proper perspective that we are not God, that he is the Lord of all, and we exist to bring glory to his name, we can turn our attention away from ourselves and begin laying our lives down for others as Jesus displayed for us. So our calling is to clothe ourselves, to tie on the apron of humility as the Lord Jesus did toward one another. That's our calling. Secondly, we're given a motivation for humility. Verses 5 and 6. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Hey, Peter quotes Proverbs 3 here, which gives us a rationale, a reason, a motivation to pursue humility toward one another. God doesn't just tell us to be humble. He gives us a reason. This motivation contains both a positive and a negative incentive. First, the negative incentive. God opposes the proud. This is a warning to those who would set themselves against the Lord in their pride. Those who lift themselves up. Peter says that God will oppose you. He will be against you. He uses a battle term here. God will become the opponent of those who are proud. The almighty God of the universe opposes those who are prideful. This is not a position that any of us want to be in. 
Scripture gives us numerous examples of those who exalted themselves and were humbled by the mighty hand of the Lord. In the account of the Exodus, Pharaoh pridefully resisted the Lord. He hardened his heart. He refused to humble himself and submit to the Lord's commands. The Lord, of course, knew that he would not submit. In Exodus 3, he tells Moses, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. Okay, the Lord compelled Pharaoh by his mighty hand. Pharaoh was prideful and the Lord compelled him. Peter in verse 6 mentions humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. In effect, you can either be compelled and forced to be humble by God's mighty hand, or you can willingly come under God's mighty hand. Israel was delivered by God's mighty hand. Pharaoh was brought down by God's mighty hand. Those who submit to the Lord in humility find salvation and safety under that hand, but those who resist the Lord, who set themselves up as rivals, will be brought down by God's mighty hand. We could point to many other uh, numerous examples in scriptures of those who exalted themselves, who lifted themselves up and refused to humble themselves before the Lord. I mean, think of Nebuchadnezzar or Herod or Goliath. Any number of names could come to mind. But scripture tells us over and over that those who exalt themselves will be brought low. Those who put themselves in the place of God like these men did will be brought down. Proverbs 16, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 18, before destruction a man's heart is haughty. 2 Samuel 27, you save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. The Lord will not tolerate any rivals. We know that every knee will bow to the Lord Jesus. Those who find refuge in him now, who willingly bow the knee now, will be exalted. But those who resist him now will eventually be put to shame. They will be brought down. They will be compelled to bow the knee. God opposes the proud. That's the warning. That is the negative motivation or incentive. Do not set yourself up as a rival to God. Do not insist your will over God's will. You will be brought down. But Peter also gives us a positive motivation for humility toward one another. He says God gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to the humble. God is merciful and favorable toward those who humble themselves before him. If pride is lifting yourself up to the place of God, humility is bowing yourselves down before the Lord and recognizing our proper place before him. This is why we kneel down when we confess our sins. We're bringing ourselves low to say, you are God, you are in the right, we have sinned. We're bringing ourselves down. Just as scripture is clear about God's opposition to the proud, it is equally clear about God's favor toward those who fear him and submit to him in humility. Second Chronicles 7 if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, 
then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Isaiah 66, all these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord, but this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The Lord is merciful and gracious to those who humble themselves before him, those who submit to his word, who tremble at his word. God gives grace to even the most wicked of sinners when they humble themselves before him in repentance. Remember King Ahab. Scripture says that King Ahab was the most wicked of kings to rule in Israel. And yet the Lord was even merciful to Ahab when he heeded God's word and humbled himself. Listen to 1 Kings 21. It says, There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, that is the words from the prophet, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elisha, Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days. But in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. And the Lord was gracious because Ahab, this wicked king, humbled himself before the Lord. He repented in sackcloth and ashes. Those who humble themselves before the Lord will find favor from the Lord. When we recognize that we are not God and that we depend upon him for everything, that his ways are better than our ways, we experience his grace, his favor. He extends his favor to those who humbly walk before him. And there is relief and comfort in knowing that God is God and you are not. We are not God. We aren't made to be God. So when we set ourselves up as gods, we're crushed under that weight. In our pride, we want to control everything, to do everything on our own, to carry all our burdens by ourselves. This is why Peter links humility with casting all our anxieties, our burdens, upon God. It is pride that seeks to carry these anxieties around. It is pride that wants to bear the burdens alone. Peter says there is grace for you in Christ. He cares for you. God cares for you and desires to take your burdens and anxieties. He wants you to recognize your dependence upon him and to lean on him. The Lord shows his strength in our weakness and dependence upon him. Remember, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. When we recognize that God is the sovereign Lord of all, that not a hair can fall from our heads without his say-so, we can humble ourselves and bring our burdens to him. Philippians 4 says, Be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Humble yourselves and bring your burdens and cares to the Lord. Peter says he cares for you. He cares for you. He's turned his face 
toward you and given you his grace in Christ. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This should motivate us to humble ourselves before him. There's grace for you there. That's our motivation. Third, the Lord gives a promise for those who humble themselves under his mighty hand. Verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The Lord not only gives us grace when we humble ourselves before him, but he promises to not leave us low, to not leave us in a humble state, but to exalt us at the proper time. We will be lifted up and vindicated at the appointed time. I mentioned earlier that Peter's writing to an audience that is undergoing various trials, slanders, ridicule, persecution by their surrounding neighbors. And this is a result of them bearing the name of Christ. Because they are Christians, they're facing intense hostility. They're losing status and respect, even their livelihood or family standing. They're being rejected by their friends. In extreme cases, some are facing threats to their own health and life. And Peter's exhortation to them in the midst of these trials is to remain humble toward one another under God's mighty hand. God promises to deliver you, to lift you up at the proper time. The temptation is for them to try to bring about their own vindication through their own prideful means. Peter says, no, remain humble toward one another and before the Lord. The Lord will set things right. The Lord will lift you up at the proper time. You may look ridiculous in the eyes of the world. You may be despised and rejected, but one day you will be vindicated. At the proper time, the Lord will lift you up. Do not let your pride interfere and cause you to take matters into your own hands. Trust the Lord that He is in control, that He cares for you, that He will prove you right at the proper time. Don't insist upon being proven right all the time. Resist the urge to be seen as the most important or smartest person in the room. You don't have to promote yourself in every situation. Trust that the Lord will raise you up and exalt you at the proper time. Proverbs 22 says, The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Psalm 147 says, The Lord lifts up the humble, he casts the wicked to the ground. And Jesus, of course, in Matthew 23, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. God promises over and over again that he will lift up those who humbly submit to him. He will exalt them at the proper time. Those who trust and rely upon him in humility will ultimately not be put to shame. And at the right time, the Lord promises to lift us up. This is the promise that God gives to those who humble themselves before him. But God did not merely give us this promise with his word only. He displayed it for us in the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Son of God himself blazed this trail ahead of us. Paul again says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. God the Son took the form of a servant. He humbled himself. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power became a helpless baby. Upon his arrival, he was laid in a feeding trough and was born to poor, unknown peasants in a little village. The Lord of all humbled himself to serve us. He laid his life down for his people and poured himself out in service for us. He was obedient to the point of death, even the humiliating death of a criminal on a Roman cross. But the story doesn't end in humility. It doesn't end in lowliness, being brought low. God exalted him and raised him from the dead. He vindicated him as the righteous one. And Jesus ascended into heaven and received the name above every name. The son who humbled himself before the father and in service to his people was exalted at the appointed time. We not only have God's promise that he will exalt the humble, we have this demonstration of God making good on that promise in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we who are united with Jesus have the same hope. We will be raised from the dead. We will be seated with him in heavenly places. And we will receive glory and honor and praise at the appointed time. This is the promise for the humble. The key to humility is not focusing on ourselves. The key is not looking inward and trying to make yourself feel more humble. The key to humility is turning your eyes on the Lord. He cares for you and offers to bear your burdens, bring your burdens and anxieties to Him. Don't carry them around by yourself. Put your pride to death and humbly seek the Lord for His help. He is more ready to offer it than we are to seek it. He promises grace to those who confess their dependence upon Him and submit to His will. Because we have the Lord's favor and acceptance in Christ and because He takes our burdens upon Himself, we are free to pour out our lives in service to one another. We can take up the slave's towel as our Lord did and humble ourselves toward one another. We don't have to prove anything to anybody. We can count others more significant than ourselves and look to their interests. We can endure the shame and ridicule of those who slander and revile us because we know that the Lord will vindicate us. He will exalt us in his proper time. We know this because his word is sure and he has demonstrated it for us by raising Jesus from the dead. We know that his promise is sure that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us into his presence. And that is our hope. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.